Father, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us for the sins which we have done and for the things which we have left undone. Father, I pray today that you, by your word and your spirit, would bring grace and mercy and truth and hope to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we want to spend time considering what the scriptures say about, in particular about abortion. You saw some of the statistics there, and they go by so fast. 3,600 abortions in our country in a day, one every 24 seconds. It's numbing. It, it's um, almost ungraspable to get your hands around, around these matters, especially when you realize that every number represents a life. Lives, really, because every abortion is about the lives of babies and about mothers and about fathers, and about siblings, and about grandparents, and grandchildren, and uncles, and aunts, and cousins. Whole families are rocked every 24 seconds by these decisions. And they're torn apart, and churches are torn apart. Families are, are broken apart from their churches over these matters. Decisions that promise peace deliver instead a heartache unimaginable, one that wounds souls deeply, ones that grieve a heavenly father. They say that something like one out of three women, some, some say it's closer to one out of two women, will have had an abortion by the time they are age 45. You saw on the screen that 70% of those who have abortions, identify themselves as Christian. And so I wonder this morning, if we really knew what happened behind those statistics in those fearful and dark and lonely times when these decisions are made, if there, if there is any chance at all that there's anyone in this room that even though perhaps unknowingly has, has not had their life touched by an abortion. Um. And nobody wants an abortion, except, I guess, maybe the people who profit from this industry. Um, Frederica Matthews Green put it like this. She said, no woman wants an abortion as she wants an ice cream cone or a Porsche. She wants an abortion as an animal caught in a trap, wants to gnaw off its own leg. And I know that's graphic. But I hope you know that it's true. Here at North Wake, we believe that there are alternatives to abortion in every case. There have to be. Because we believe God to be the Lord of life, even the life of the littlest ones. We believe like the song says, 
that he loves the little children, all the children of the world, um, even those who are yet to be born. And we believe that he is a God of hope and of a grace that is greater than all of our sin, all of our sin, even sin that revolves around this issue. And so what I want us to do today is we think about what we'd rather not think about. Um, I want us to think about it through the lens of what we know to be true about God. Um, who God is and let his character shape what we think and believe and do about abortion. And so there's a handful of traits, literally, that I think uh, today we'll have a chance to get through. That I, want us, I want these to be our guide. These are not the finer points of Christian doctrine. These are not debated. This is who God is, okay, without question. And they bring us great hope, great mercy as we think about this whole issue of abortion. So let's just walk through five things about God that are true about God that need to shape the way we think about these matters. The first is simply this. Our God is sovereign. He rules over all of life. He's the Lord over all of creation and all of life. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things, all things hold together. He is Lord of all, of all of creation and all of life. And as you read through the scriptures, he's Lord of, of the details. And it's not just a like, I'm a big picture thinker. Don't ask me details. Don't ask me to remember details, please. I'm a big picture guy. God is a God of the big picture and of minutia. When you start reading the teachings of Jesus and you read that the numbers on, of hairs on your head are numbered. The hairs on your head are numbered by God. A fate more amazing for some of you than others. Um, sparrows' lives. They're coming and going. Sparrows, those little birds that you don't even notice, noticed by God. And there's a special uh, sense in the scriptures as you read it that the sovereignty of God extends to wombs. It really is stunning what the scriptures teach about the sovereignty of God extending over even the wombs of mothers. Famously, Psalm 139 says this. It's beautiful. Listen to it. Prayer to God. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Creation of life in the womb is uniquely God's realm. His sovereignty extends there. His merciful sovereignty extends there. You, know, you see in, in ex- explicit references in the Old Testament that God opens wombs. Genesis 30, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. God did that. And then you'll also read in 1 Samuel 1, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. This opening and closing of wombs, the the giving of life, conception, this is God's turf. This is what God does. And he is particularly active in engaging life in the womb. The stories of the way God Uh, shapes life in the womb in the Bible are fascinating. Think back to the Christmas story. Think of John the Baptist and when Mary showed up. Remember how John leapt in Elizabeth's womb by the work of the Spirit in this yet unborn child? It it happens in the Old Testament as well. In the prophet Isaiah, it says, Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Isaiah, the great prophet, was formed by God from the womb to be God's servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I'm honored in the eyes of my Lord and my God has become my strength, he says. Um, You even see God's shaping pre-womb in the life of Jeremiah. He says uh, to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you and before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So as we see the expanse of God's good sovereignty over all of his creation, especially over life in the womb, we want to tread very humbly here. We know that it's sacred ground when we talk about life in the womb. God is active here. He gives it. He gives this life. He shapes this life. And that leads us to our second really shaping consideration about God. God is, our God is sovereign. Our God is, is holy. Um, Revelation 4 says it this way. These amazing creatures, four of them, each of them with six wings, full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Our God is holy. And as a result of his holiness, interesting things happen when God interacts with our world, with people. It's why when you, when you read the teachings and interactions of Jesus with people, um, When he touches a leper, Jesus is supposed to be defiled by the leper. That's not what happens. 
when Jesus touches the leper, the leper is cleansed. And that which was not sacred, that which was not clean, is made clean by the holiness of the Son of God. This kind of amazing sacred transfer happens at the giving of life as well. When, when babies are conceived, they bear the image of God. Now, I don't have enough letters after my name to tell you what all that means. But I do know that only in creation is that lofty um, description given to one of God's creation. It's given to mankind, to humankind. Male and female, Genesis um, 1 simply says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, men and women, boys and girls, young and old, in God's image. That which bears God's image takes on a special sacredness, unique amongst all of creations. And you pick this up also right away in the book of Genesis. By the way, this life is guarded. This, the life of the image bearer has a special um, protection, a guardianship that God gives to it. In Genesis 9, we get this stern warning. Your lifeblood I will require, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This kind of penalty reflects a unique kind of sacredness to the life of men and women and boys and girls and babies. I'm driving from Youngsville into Wake Forest the other day. And I come over the rise of a hill. And a car has stopped dead in the middle of the road. This is... Uh, I guess it's White Street runs up to Youngsville, you know, and it's kind of curvy, hilly, 55 at least for some of you, 55. This lady has stopped her car in the middle of the road and, I mean, not pulled off the side or anything, just stopped her car dead in this lane at 55, and she is out walking the line of the road in heels. Um, and I'm, I come up behind her, and it was not a safe situation. I, got, I get stopped, and uh, I figure out what's going on, and uh, she's rescuing a turtle. Okay. <clears throat> now, I like critters, okay? I do. I do. Uh, one of the highlights of my life was the safari we went on as a family in Africa a couple years ago. I have a bird feeder outside the window of my office, okay? I, I've been accused of hugging trees and being green. I love God's good earth and the creation. I do. So when I come up on this woman rescuing a turtle in the middle of the road, you know what I think. I think she's crazy, okay? Now, understand this. I'm not somebody who goes out of his way to run over turtles in the road. That would never happen. I would never do that. 
I'm not, I'm not that guy. But I think she's crazy. Now imagine if she had, if she'd gotten there too late and she had come upon that turtle with a broken shell in the road and she swooped that turtle up and she dialed 911 to ask them to come for the turtle. Send an ambulance. We're not sure why, but something's wrong with that picture, isn't it? What if it had been a child? What if it had been a child that she'd come upon in the road? Anything less would be wrong, wouldn't it? There's a difference. There is a difference between animal life and human life. The very image of God has been given to us and to our kind. So when, when you see things like this, that to destroy an eagle egg is punishable by fines up to $250,000, we have laws against that, but we have laws permitting, at least up to 20 weeks now, abortion for any reason to kill an unborn child. Something has gotten horribly twisted in how we think about life and how we think about what it means that God has said um, in, this, in this part of my creation, uniquely, I'm going to put my image that in, nowhere, in no way diminishes the rest of creation, but it does exalt men and women and boys and girls and babies born and unborn to an extraordinary status, a sacred status, because God alone, who alone is holy, has in imparting his image given a special sacredness to the lives of all people, male and female, born and unborn. Our God is sovereign. Our God is holy. Our God is also compassionate. So I love this description in Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers we're dust. God is compassionate, especially towards those who are weak and vulnerable. His compassion is towards those who fear him because he knows how weak we are. He remembers that we're weak and vulnerable. especially towards those who are weak and vulnerable and innocent. Deuteronomy, we studied this a couple years ago. Those terrible curses in Deuteronomy 27 say, Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of the father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say amen. And that's obviously the wrong verse. So let's try this one in verse 25. <laughs> I, evidently... God's sovereignty extended to that, and some of you needed to hear that today. I'll let you work with that, however that works. <laughs> Cursed, verse 25, let's say. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. Proverbs 6, and these are the right verses, Say that there are six things the Lord hates. Hates these things. Seven that are an abomination to him. Here they are. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. 
I'll stop there. John Piper said it well, Surely the blood of the unborn is as innocent as any blood that flows in the world. They should be recipients of God's protective compassion through the church. We are appointed as, as dispensers of the compassion of God, protectors of the unborn. Okay. Uh, of the many of the poor and needy and vulnerable, we are called to protect, especially these perhaps. Fascinating account. In 1958, there was a brilliant young medical researcher who made a startling discovery, um, Down syndrome. A genetic disorder that affects about 1 in 700 babies in the U.S. is caused by the presence of an extra 21st chromosome. Dr. Jerome Lejeune's discovery and future research would revolutionize the field of genetics. But what most people don't know is Dr. Lejeune was also a committed Christian who strove to care for children and families impacted by Down syndrome. And he was horrified as he gradually realized that his discovery could be used to abort children with trisomy 21. Lejeune's daughter recounted the day her father came home for lunch, his face ashen white, and told the family, if I don't protect children with Down syndrome, I am nothing. And today, statisticians tell us that 93% of babies prenatally diagnosed with Down syndrome are aborted. Guys, you like ESPN? ESPN has done one of the most powerful pro-life pieces. ESPN that I've run across in a while. Uh, it's on a dad with Down's, uh, Down's daughter. Um, it's called Perfect. Uh, between the games today, go to ESPN online and, and, and Google Perfect ESPN and watch this man's video. It's powerful. I hear those statistics, and I think of the words of Jesus that say, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We must bear the compassion of Christ to these little ones and to their mothers and to their families, because our God is compassionate towards the least of these. He is sovereign and holy and compassionate. Our God is also a God of hope. Romans 15, this beautiful little prayer. I pray it for you all often. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. He is the God of hope. And it seems to me that one of the hardest things in a crisis pregnancy is to have hope. Hope that you can bring this child into the world in the midst of all of your overwhelming circumstances and fears and loneliness. That's more, that requires more hope than a lot of people have. I think, I think this is behind 
a stunning statistic. Um, women who have had abortions, 81% of them say they would not have aborted if they had had the support of the father. Okay, 81%. That's the hope they need, that the dad will stand with them in this. And that obviously all too often is not the case. New York Magazine do you know that 41% of all uh, pregnancies in New York City end in abortion? 41%. New York Magazine boldly then compiled women's abortion stories and published them. And this is what some of the women have to say about the men in their life and their abortion decision. Nicole, who is 19, says her boyfriend was flip-flopping about the, flip-flopping about the decision. He was on the football team and couldn't settle the matter of his own willingness to step up and be a man for his girlfriend and child. Nicole desperately wanted the child, but ultimately her boyfriend told her when they got to the abortion clinic, we drove all this way, stop crying and act like a woman. Tired of fighting, Nicole went through with the abortion and is haunted by the fact that her would-have-been due date is approaching. Lauren is 34 and she remembers that her boyfriend terrorized her. It was self-preservation from his abuse that prompted her abortion decision. Cleo, 23, had two boyfriends, wasn't sure which one the baby belonged to, but told... One told her that if she kept the baby, she'd have to be a mother forever. And the other, a video game addict, wanted her to have an abortion. Receiving support from neither man, she sought an abortion. Boyfriends are not the only culprits of coercion and manipulation, however. Heather, 32, recalling her in-law's involvement in the decision, since they were helping her out financially, she says, I felt very forced. I felt like I was required to have an abortion to provide for my current family. Her in-laws paid for the abortion. She said, money is manipulation. See, we must assure women in, women in crisis, and we're the only ones who can do this, we must assure them that there is a supportive father. There is one father who promises never to forsake them, never to fail them. When things seem hopeless, they are not because there is a heavenly father who loves them. And loves their little one who is yet to be born. You can't see this a lot of times from where you are when you're contemplating abortion. And that's why it's up to, to us, God's church, to bear the hope of Christ to them. We must counsel them. We must help them financially. We must Befriend them and care for them and love them. Share them that our God is a God of compassion and hope. And, and we have not done this well. The church in America has not done this well. Just last week, unbelievably, we got a prayer request concerning an area pastor who was pressuring the mother of his unborn child to abort. An area pastor who was pressuring the mother of his unborn child to abort. It's a bad time to have a baby. See, too often the church has publicly shamed pregnant teenagers with a scarlet letter type public confession up in front of everybody and then shunned them. And the result is, of course, now they'd rather talk to an abortionist than their pastor. 
Not here. Okay. Not at North Wake. We must bring the hope of God's all-sufficient grace to these ladies. We must be the hands and feet of Christ to them during their pregnancy and after. We have to help them see that there's a hope greater than their suffering. There's a hope greater than their fears. It's that the God of hope does love them and their little one. They can cast all of their cares on him because he really does care for them. And we are privileged to partner with a local um, crisis pregnancy center called First Choice. Many of you have volunteered and served there. This is just a snapshot of their web shot. I encourage you to go there later today. Um, Amber Lehman is a North Waker that we've loaned to another local church. She'll be back. Um, <clears throat> and I'm asking her about the role our church needs to play in, um, in partnering with them. And uh, this is what she said. Give us money, lots of money. Okay, I'm, I'm quoting. Big budget this year. Okay. That's one thing. They have a walk-a-thon coming up to raise those resources um, in late April. Uh, we'll start signing up folks in February. You can, you can walk. You can sponsor a walker. Um, they have lots of volunteer opportunities. Their counselors are most all volunteers. Um, if you're not the counseling type, um, they do workshops that equip women who decide to carry their little ones with life skills, everything from uh, home repair to budget managing, finances, that kind of stuff, to just how to raise a little one. That, uh, there are all kinds of volunteer opportunities in their office and um, all these things. And of course, the church needs to pray. You should have a prayer list. This should be part of it. I, I, love, I love the vision of the people who put together that opening video, right? Their faith shames me. End abortion by 2020. Wouldn't that be cool? Pray. Pray. One of the most significant things I read this week uh, in my preparation for this message was a, a, a message that Mother Teresa gave at a, at a national prayer breakfast. I think it was in the early 90s. Listen to what she said. America needs no words from me to see how your decision in Roe versus Wade has deformed a great nation. The so-called right to abortion has pitted mothers against their children and women against men. It has portrayed the greatest of gifts, a child, as a competitor, an intrusion, and an inconvenience. She says, please don't kill the child. I want the child. Please give me the child. I am willing to accept any child who would be aborted and to give that child to a married couple who will love the child and be loved by the child. We must bring the hope of God to these women and their families because our God is a God of hope. And the last thing of 
many more that I could share with you. Our God is a God of grace. He is a God of grace. Exodus 34 says it beautifully. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If our God is a God of grace, if He really is, as a church family, what are we to make of those who come to us and have aborted their babies? What do we make of parents and husbands and boyfriends who have pressed mothers to abort their children? What do we make of abortion providers when they come to us? How are we to treat them? What are we to tell them? This is what we tell them. We say with Isaiah, come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We say to them with the Apostle Paul, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty, might become rich. We should say, the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may, may rest upon me. We would tell them that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We tell them what we tell each other. Okay. We tell them, we say, Oh, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed 
on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? So this morning, if, if abortion is in your past, okay, in all the different ways that it's in our past, because we were silent, because we pressured someone, because we went to the abortionist's office, there is grace greater than all your sin here. You say, how do we know this? You are sitting next to the chief of sinners. They'll tell you. You are welcome here. You are loved here. You will not be condemned here. Here's why. There is therefore now no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He took it all. And that brings us to this table. A reminder of love and mercy, of grace greater than all our sin. It is exclusively a table for sinners, a special kind of sinners, great sinners, prolific sinners, horrible sinners, repentant sinners are welcome at this table. Sinners who trust that Jesus, the mighty cross, removes that dark stain that we cannot hide. So if you will bow with me, we just want to have a time of meditation and readiness to think about a grace that's greater than all of our sin. And then I'll lead us as we come to the table. Let's pray.